Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. In the 1970s and 80s, a monster hunted the Connecticut River Valley. Seven bodies found, one survivor, and no suspects. I'm Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. I was seven months pregnant and stabbed 27 times, and I survived. My story didn't end that frightful night. This attack on me physically and mentally lingered for years. I'm Amanda Bedard, and I'm Jane's life coach and co-host of Invisible Tears. Jane is ready to share her story, and not just about her attack, but her healing process afterwards. As a platform for truth and healing, we are on a mission to help others that suffer from PTSD and help bring awareness to mental health issues. To hear my story and others, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This episode is sponsored by the game Best Fiends. It's no mystery that I love true crime, but after a day spent learning about all the worst things a person can do, I need some time to decompress and cleanse my palate with a little fun and relaxation. My go-to is Best Fiends, the only mobile game I need on my phone. Best Fiends is a five-star rated mobile puzzle game filled with fun, engaging puzzles to keep your brain both entertained and challenged while you work to defeat some slugs, earn some meteor mites, and grow your character collection. With Best Fiends, the fun truly never ends. With over 5,000 levels, the most adorable characters, and fun little challenges that update to keep your interest, this game is the perfect de-stressor that can keep you entertained in even the most boring of situations. Now that I'm officially a carpool mom, I spend a good chunk of time parked in a line of cars with nothing to occupy me but my radio and my phone. So lately, I've been spending quite a bit of time working my way through some levels and trying to get some more characters to complete my team on Best Fiends. I am on level 535 and recently got a very cute little guitar player named Freddy, who I've been working on leveling up while I wait for school to let out. The best part, it doesn't require internet, so I can play whenever and wherever I want. And I love that I'm having some fun while still making my brain work. 
So join me and millions of people who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Make the most out of your downtime and spend some time with your favorite fiends. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a... Weird homicide. Seen described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird morning. Cop of murder. When life seems to be heading in all the wrong directions, it's hard to see a way out. On September 3rd, 1998, a young mother felt as though there was no way out of the life she had made for herself. A mother who didn't want to leave her children behind. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Kwa Her's story started to head in a downward trajectory when she was just nine months old. That was the year her parents, who had been living with her in the mountains of Laos since her birth on December 31st, 1973, decided to separate and, as is tradition in Hmong divorce, one parent bore the responsibility and the other took custody of any children. In Kwa's case, that left her mother out of the picture and her father as her sole provider. Eventually, Nia Kwa Her remarried a woman who, according to witnesses, didn't care for her new stepdaughter and would hit Kwa and call her names. Those who knew Kwa as a child said her family, including her father, treated her as an orphan, that no one loved her. When Kwa was four years old, her family fled Laos and went to live in a refugee camp in Thailand, where, for her family and almost all of the others coming to live, the transition from rural life to an encampment was jarring, to say the least. With no jobs, no money, and only public rations, the once rural farmers had a hard time adjusting to this new way of life. Of course, the children learned to handle the change a bit better than the adults, but almost everyone in the camp struggled with lack of privacy that usually only allowed a 10 by 12 foot space for an entire family regardless of its size. While at the encampment, Kwa started to spread her wings a bit and started to rebel against the chores assigned to her, earning quite a few punishments from the older women surrounding her. One night when Kwa was just 12 years old, her stepmother locked her out of the unit for one reason or another. While stranded outside, Kwa was picked up by a 17-year-old boy named Tu Hung, who took her home with him. Now, according to Tu and his mother, the courtship between him and Kwa was traditional to the Hmong ancestry. But according to Kwa, the minute she went home with Tu, her, quote, reputation was ruined and her family didn't want her leaving her no choice but to marry the older boy before she was even a teenager. They married in 1986, and by June of 1987, Kwa had given birth to her first child, Kua Ai, a boy whose own father, according to Kwa, refused to touch for the first year of his life. But if you ask Tu and his mother, it was Kwa who refused and left the baby to be raised by the rest of the family. Fifteen months later, she welcomed a son named Samson, and within another year, had a daughter named Nali. In accordance to Hmong tradition, the married couple lived with Tu's parents, where Kwa claimed her mother-in-law beat her mercilessly, and her husband was never home. Still a child herself, Kwa was forced to care for Tu's entire family, on top of caring for the children the pair had in rapid succession. After eight years of requests, the Hong family was finally given permission to emigrate to the United States and wound up in St. Paul, Minnesota, 
where Qual worked hard to pick up a whole new language and culture after spending most of her life in an encampment. While she excelled at her new studies, two struggled to pick up the language. So instead, Qual was the one who enrolled in Johnson High School, while two stayed home with the children. For the first time in her life, Qual was on her own and doing something completely for herself, unburdened by her family or her husband's, and free for a moment to live the life of a typical teenager. But of course, she wasn't a typical teenager. She was a married woman with three children back home, something I'm sure none of her peers could understand, and had seen some of the worst pieces of humanity when she was just a child. Regardless, she coasted through school, almost completely forgotten by her teachers and counselors, and collected a number of friends along the way. According to some, Kwa often gave off an arrogant attitude, acting as though she was better than the other students, and was known to have some hot-headed moments. But other than that, no one really had any information about Kwa's time in high school, and she continued to fly under the radar, despite the fact that, for most of her high school career, Kwa continued to get pregnant, welcoming babies Tang Lung and Ye back to back. In 1992, Kwa graduated from high school and quickly began a job assembling computers with an Eden Prairie firm while setting the goal of obtaining her real estate license. Unfortunately, the ambitious woman's goals were hindered by her growing family. And by the time she was just 20 years old, Kwa had welcomed her sixth and final child, Tang K. On the surface, Kwa was a traditional wife, the only real exception being her role as the family breadwinner. And the large family seemed like the perfect loving one with no evidence that anyone was unhappy with their arrangement. In reality, Qual was drowning in her complicated and tragic past, the overwhelming and controlled present, and her bleak-looking future. And if you asked Tu and his family, Qual was a distant and uninvolved mother who had violent, hot-tempered outbursts. Eventually, the family started to suffer from financial strain and were told that they were facing eviction from their townhouse. All of it became too much for the young couple. They became estranged, and the police were called to the home at least 16 times since 1996. The general consensus amongst the local Hmong community was that there was a lot of speculation, but few knew enough to step in not wanting to draw the wrong conclusion. But at some point, the Hmong elders, along with some family members, got together to try and resolve at least some of their conflict. They suggested that Kwa go to Detroit and stay with her mother for a bit. She agreed, left Michigan in September of 1997, leaving her kids with two. She returned five months later, and things rapidly deteriorated from then resulting in the elders backing off when Kwa obtained an order of protection against her husband in June of 1998. Because of the restraining order, Tu was forced to move out of the family home and was once sent to jail after trying to deliver food to his children. Now alone with her kids, Kwa began to assess the life that she was living. The overwhelming responsibility of motherhood, the cultural gap between parents and children, the poverty they now faced, and the extreme loneliness she felt after leaving the man that she'd been married to since she was 13. Kwa felt like there was very little she could do to get out of her desperate situation. So she made the decision so many do when faced with the impossible and she decided to take her own life. The responsibility was too much. The regret of getting married too young was consuming, but the one thing holding her back was how much she loved her children. 
On September 3rd, 1998, Kwa called each of her children into her room one by one from oldest to youngest. When they stood next to her, she reached down and, with a black piece of cloth, began strangling them to death. First was 11-year-old Kua Ai, then 9-year-old Samson, 9-year-old Nali, 7-year-old Tang Lung, 6-year-old Ie, and 5-year-old Tang K. When she was finished, she wrapped an electrical cord around her neck and to a light fixture on the second floor. She jumped off the balcony and hoped to take her final breath. From what experts can surmise, shortly after going unconscious, the fixture broke and she fell to the ground, severely injuring her back. Having no clue what to do and no way to attempt her life a second time, Qual called the police and said, I killed the kids. I don't know why I killed the kids. Police then quickly responded to the house that had become so familiar to them by now and found 24-year-old Kwa still lying on the floor with the cord around her neck, wearing an elegant red evening gown. They also found the bodies of all six children scattered around the house, some of their bodies still warm to the touch. In all of the years that they had responded to the home, they never once thought the children were in danger. Neither did anyone in the Hmong community. All of the issues seemed to be domestic, and no one thought to get the children out of the home until it was too late. Everyone was completely shocked. When questioned about the event, Kwa claimed she couldn't remember how many children she had, only recalling the names of two of them. So the only form of confession they had was the chilling 911 call made prior to their arrival. And given the fact that English was not her first language, lawyers were quick to come to her side and argue her level of guilt. While many prepared for the trial, the Hmong community gathered in different meeting locations to discuss how to prevent such a horrible event from ever happening again. St. Paul, where one in 10 of their 272,000 population is Hmong, gathered by the hundreds to pay their respect for the Hmong children during a four-day funeral. Kwa did not attend the funeral and had, by this point, been charged with six counts of second-degree murder and held on a bail of $1 million, while her lawyers fought to determine her level of competency. She was found fit to stand trial, and her lawyer entered a plea of not guilty. During a 45-minute hearing, Kwa tearfully told the courtroom about her suicide attempt and how she couldn't bear leaving her children behind, saying, quote, if I died, then nobody would love my children. When she was finished, the not guilty plea was reversed. She pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 50 years in prison with parole offered in 33 years. If paroled on her first attempt, she will be 57 years old when she walks free. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on September 4th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.